the challenge we always face is what do you do, right? The evidence jungle, we're told RCTs are for therapeutic, you know, for therapeutic, uh, you know, uh, questions. That is the question, you know, that's the tool you're going to use. But RCTs can be quite dangerous. And I think particularly no more than any other time in history, and I think the last four months have helped us think through this, uh, Johnny Anudis, who uh, some of you know is an epidemiologist at Stanford, has been speaking about the dangers of uh, research broadly. And he, he has this really provocative paper, I think it's in Plus Medicine in 2005, that says why all published research findings are false. And he goes through this whole you know, hypothesis, but you know, small studies is a big part of that central hypothesis. But then you say, okay, well, if we're not gonna, if RCTs are all bad, well, small ones maybe are concerning, what do we do for the other side, the observational data sets? And then it gets into the whole issue that you discussed. I'm not gonna repeat all that, but you raise all the issues that we struggle with. And then we thought, well, what do you trust now? Like, like what, as a, as a consumer of evidence, what do we trust? because everything seems to have some degree of challenge or if not uh, concern. And maybe it's when they align, you know, every study seems to say, well, we can get a high quality observational study. And there were some papers probably over a decade ago in the New England Journal of Medicine that said, if we do an observational study and we appropriately adjust for confounding, look, our results of observational data are consistent with RCTs, but they were still using the RCT as the benchmark standard. And, that's kind of the circular argument, you know, that we get into. So what you present, I think, is fascinating in the concept of, and I think we're going that way. I see Samir Parpia here as well. So I, I wanna, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you, Samir, to give your thoughts on this, on the McMaster side of things. But platforms, I think, are really useful. And I think finding ways to make trials more efficient uh, and using already data that's collected and minimizing consent, all these things that are just music to my ears when I hear you presenting it. And the fact that you're successfully um, you know, executing, I think makes it even more exciting, which means, and the question I'll put up first, and I'll let others comment on this is, how can we take what you're doing in Australia and expand that now globally in a way that your 15,000 patients can become 45,000 patients? Um, using the same uh, approach, but maybe thinking even bigger than you are. And you're already thinking bigger than most. So I'm not saying that you've already put a different level on, on, you know, on the conventional approach. Let me ask you that. Can this be, what's the, what's the reality we could take this model and just grow it and continually grow it across, you know, continents? That question for me? Oh, uh, yeah, sure, sure. Go ahead, Ian, or, or feel free. That I wouldn't mind hearing from others their thoughts on this general issue. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to hear from, from others, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, here. Okay, so um, is there anyone else who has a comment before Ian jumps in? Let me ask Samir, because I know he's there, and I know he's a thoughtful guy. <laughs> he's probably thinking, why are you asking? But I know you're here. So if you're here, I'm going to ask you. Yeah, I mean, you nailed it, right? The point is trials are getting very expensive and the efficiency is a big thing. Um, you know, here, um, I, I think to, to do it globally, it's the technology platform, you know, there's privacy issues and all those things you have to take into consideration. But it would be amazing if everybody were to use a platform which could, uh, you could nest a, 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 a trial in and get these long-term outcomes. So, for example, you know, in I don't know this field very well, but you know, two years seems not a, in an in, inadequate follow-up time, and you'd like long-term, long-term follow-up for about 
10 years or so. So it'd be great um, to do it, but to do it across platforms seems a bit more challenging. So in Australia, they've built a platform where they can do it now for the, say for Ontario to do something like that, you know. Oh, well, I mean, yeah, and I guess, I'm, I guess the question I'm asking Samir is, is, is do you believe the idea of a registry um, nested RCT makes more sense than our conventional approaches? So registry alone has holes, small RCTs have tons of challenges. And the biggest challenge I've always found with RCTs is the follow-up and the cost of collecting data and the, you know, the amount of time we have to spend to collect a thousand patients for our trials has been several years. They're collecting 15,000 patients now in two years. And that's the cluster crossover design that I know PHRI has been all over. PHRI is the Population Health Research Institute at McMaster. It's hard, it's hard to argue. Very keen on that, yeah. There is, say for example, you know, you could you could in a regular RCT get fifteen thousand patients and follow them. There is an argument from people at Vanderbilt saying that there are they think that it is good that an RCT does not mimic real world practice. They think that because it's hard to hard to detect heterogeneity of treatment effects within subgroups, it's hard to do it. We, we hardly see it. Yeah. And they think that on an absolute scale, it's not transportable to the general population. But on a relative scale, so a hazard ratio and odds ratio, you can fairly convincingly transport that, that value because it's hard to detect any uh, heterogeneity of treatment effects. So I think there's an argument saying that, you know, the generalizability thing is not so is not that big of an issue. Even people try to make it bigger of an issue. There's an issue, well, it's not in surgery, but adherence to medication is an issue in RCTs and that you can adjust for. Um, but on the efficiency side, I, I don't think you can, there is a great value in these nested RCTs because you could just, you know, get these outcomes, get them long-term and recruit faster. But there is an argue, opposite argument of this generalizability that the, if you're measuring it on a relative scale, you can transport that treatment effect to a, to a different population just because it's hard to detect heterogeneity of treatment effects. Oh, that's very interesting. Um, I want to get Richard, if I could, just to maybe un unmute and give his statement. I have to see a hand up there, but I know he has a thought on observational studies. Richard, did you want to just unmute and share your thought? Now, has he frozen? Okay, I think he may have frozen. I'm going to get Vikas. I think you had a question. Or thought, yeah. Yeah. So, Ian, a great talk. Uh, in fact, all three talks are good. Um, my question is do you, uh, you're talking only about joint replacements. So, all your joint replacements, do you actually do PROMs on them? Or is it just. Uh, Thank you. Sorry, Tom. My uh, internet's become fragile. Okay. You know what? If you just hang on for one second, I'm going to have uh, Vikas Kandu just speak and then we'll get you right back in. So, Ian, do you do PROMs on all your patients as well? Mm -hmm. And do you actually uh, record that in your registry? Or is it just uh, survival analysis in terms of failure of the joints? Yeah, so the, the Australian registry recently, uh, it's 2018, started collecting uh, PROMs. And so we did a pilot uh, that involved, I think, 44 hospitals. Um, and so we, we've got data on on I think 15 or 20,000 patients in the first sort of year or two. And, um, 
and now we're in the process of rolling that out to other hospitals. Um, so yes, it's it's now routine for joint replacement in participating hospitals, but that's not every hospital in the country, but it's certainly a lot of them. Um, uh, but the idea is that this platform can now be used for non-joint replacement. So uh, Richard, who's who's there and is going to talk shortly, he and I have uh, um, just designed a placebo uh, shoulder surgery trial. And initially, when we were getting the funding for that, we were, we were looking at the possibility of nesting that in the registry, even though the joint placement registry has nothing to do with with rotator cuff disease. Uh, they've got the platform to do the trials. They've got the people. They get ethics approval. They do all the the legwork for you. They've got the automated system to collect proms. You just have to change the you know Oxford knee score to the Oxford shoulder score. Or, or, or whatever it is that you want to do for your outcome. So um, we're hoping it's going to be, you know, used beyond just joint replacement. So, I mean, our experience is that I've grant the National Non-Arthroplasty Hip Registry for Hip Preservation Procedures for about three years uh, now in the UK, and we've got about uh, more than 15,000 patients on it. We don't have compliance of more than 50% in these patients because we, we're sending them um, patient-reported outcome measures via email. We're reminding them, but the compliance rates are low, you know, and, yeah. and that's the same problem with, with the RCTs. You know, if the compliance rates are going to be low on your registries, then you are in the same problem. And the, the yeah. second issue is what's your primary outcome measure and how do you introduce that into your registry? Unless and until yeah. you're going to get a compliance rate of at least 80% plus on your primary outcome measure, that's not going to be a good trial either. So that's yeah. that's a sort of so how do you how do you get around that? Yeah. So there's there's there's, there's two answers to that. Uh, first of all, um, for example, the the VTE prophylaxis study that we're doing now, obviously that's going to involve outcomes that are not normally collected in the registry because we want to find out about clots. We want to find out whether people get a DVT or a PE. Um, and so we've added those questions to the platform because this platform can just have questions added and subtracted to it. And we want the outcome at 90 days. And so we find out if they had a, a VTE at 90 days, that's our primary outcome. Now, because, it's an, because that's a nested RCT, we don't just rely on the electronic follow-up. So the electronic follow-up varies between hospitals. And like you say, some hospitals are terrible, some hospitals are good. Um, um, so we have telephone backup for the RCTs. And so our follow-up rate for the, for the uh, eight or so thousand that we've collected so far is about 91%. Um, the other answer is that we're just in the middle of writing up uh, a paper looking at whether Response, responses vary according to the proportion of follow-up that you achieve. And, and it's quite interesting that it, that it doesn't. Um, and so 50% follow-up in a broad PROMS program, I think for an RCT, yeah, I mean, you've got to do better. For an RCT, you've got to be 90%, uh, which is what we're aiming at. But, but for a broad PROMS program, if you're getting 50% from one hospital and 80% from another, you're probably not necessarily getting a biased sample. You just got a hospital that doesn't follow up very well. Um, so there's some interesting questions uh, that you've raised there, Vicar, thanks. 
Let me get uh, Dr. Page maybe to come, come back in. So I think you had a comment that um, you wanted to share. Yeah, thanks, Mo, and so apologies for dropping out there, the crucial, crucial step. Um, this, this is a fascinating topic. And firstly, just an observation and a comment, really a question for the group in that, you know, one of the, the challenges, the criticisms, I think has already been alluded to in um, quite really tight, methodologically tight RCTs is uh, selection bias and external validity. And Ian's touched off on that. And that's a a regular criticism. You can make the results look really nice, tight, but how do you transfer that out? So clearly um, having a broader platform like, um, for example, the cluster randomization that Ian's spoken to is important. Mo, what you alluded to is this great attraction is how do we go cross jurisdiction, uh, you know, not just multi-centre, but multinational to make this a more global thing. And an observation and therefore a challenge there is data harmonisation. And um, having been involved in a couple of projects doing cross-registry walks just with, you know, centres um, offshore, you've got to spend a lot of front-end time doing that because what you call an apple and what we call an apple may be a banana, you know. And so if you don't have that right um, and um, spend a lot of time doing that at the front end. So I guess the, the, the question and therefore the challenge is, um, you know, should we be spending more time on data harmonisation and outcome harmonisation now at the front end before we get too excited about um, the trials? Well, yeah, I mean, the way I've always looked at it in, you know, and what we've learned is if you find something that works really well and a group of people have figured out how to do it very well, you know, you've got a very strong proof of concept. And this is by no means like um, an invention that you've had, but you've, you, you've figured out how to make it work and you're doing yeah. it efficiently. The, everything about that is expansion. How do you make that now the norm where other people can gain the same benefits? So we're not just continually, you know, not advancing because we're just all doing other things. Now that comes under the belief that it is the right way to go and, and going forward. Let me ask you this. You know, one question I've had, and I suspect this evidence must exist and must be doable. When you look to use registry data as an efficient way to collect outcomes. So, you know, that's a massive shift. That's a massive shift. That and that and not having to get a consent are two things that completely change the yeah. game for research. Now, have you done any sort of comparisons where you say, okay, we did a comparison of a trial that was modeled using registry data, and we actually have an independent large trial that didn't use registry data and compare those two to say, when we model our nested design, the results against other large gold standards that we know are very expensive, unlikely to be reproduced, but we get the same answer. Because so much of that is about the, can we, can we approximate what we believe the truth would be if we had the ideal study design? And maybe it's not going to be in orthopedics. Maybe it'll be in other areas where they have large studies like cardiovascular, for example, and they've done cross for crossovers in that area. I'm just curious if there's any way to test that or you know, just test the robustness of using that model. Yeah, I don't, I don't know of examples, but I think when you look at it, I mean, it, it, it is robust because. Um, okay. 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 I believe you. I'll justify it. When you, when you look at cluster randomized trials that have a lot of clusters, I think there's problems when you've got, um, Cluster randomized trials with four or five clusters that don't cross over, you've got huge problems that you probably can't necessarily prove away. You know, 
but once you once you get a lot of clusters and you add the crossover you're going to get very very comparable groups uh, and the you can test statistically for for um uh, you know, correlation between clusters and correlation yeah, yeah. within clusters. Oh, no. yeah, yeah. Um, you know, cause to show you that that you know what you've got is a robust answer. Um, but I'll just go back. Maybe it's a little bit of a tangent. But your question before is who do we believe? And I guess that's the topic of the of this thing is who should we believe? Um, it's always convenient when things do align. Um, and a lot of us tend to look at the differences and think, oh, someone's wrong. And when you look at John's study and you say, look, the RCT showed there was no difference, um, but the, the registry data shows the hazard ratio is 1.9, you know, what's going on? But when you look at it closely, they're very well aligned. They, they both actually show the same thing because the randomized trials show that there's no difference in the first year or two which is exactly what John showed with a hazard ratio of 0.98. It's only the, it's, it's after that that it starts to, to deviate. So, you know, in a way they support each other. It's a, you know, and that makes the, the finding a bit more robust. It's, it's when you see big differences like they saw in the Women's Health, Health Initiative, um, but then that makes it interesting. You've got to try and explain, well, which one's wrong? Can we, um, analyze it differently to find out why and that's exactly what they did um, and found the reason why they're different so normally you end up finding out the truth or a closest yeah, estimate no, no. Of the truth. Uh, I, I think we continue to evolve we're all trying to find ways to make um, you know, try to get to the answer but more efficiently get to the answer and probably nowhere better than the last four months have we realized the challenge of doing that when you're you know, when all the floodgates are opened up and everyone's looking for a cure, let's say in this case for COVID-19, we're seeing, you know, an epidemic of information and a lot of it, a lot of it is problematic. Um, so we have to find, but platform trials or platform systems have become very, very popular. As you know, the most recent yeah. of the group from the UK, Oxford group, just, you know, had their discovery that, you know, uh, steroids may in fact be helpful, but they've been testing, what, 10, 15 different treatments, you know, rapidly. The, the idea of that, I think, is the future. Um, I don't know what others think who are who are involved in large programs here, but I would suspect that we're going to see a move to platforms uh, more commonly because they are efficient. Yeah, I think, and we need to distinguish between um, a trials platform, which is what we built, and a platform trial, which is something uh, yeah, else. Yeah, right. True. Um, true, true. Sorry. Right. And the idea of a platform trial is very attractive, but when you look into it, you know, and even things like response adaptive randomization all these right. really neat uh techniques that people have they kind of rely on a shortish outcome uh and they're really not suitable for say not for joints yeah. Yeah, yeah. in uh, yeah. uh fractured neck of femur. so you do need you know it it, yeah. it would probably be better for a you know bte trial or something like that uh, maybe that'll be the next one we'll do Listen, realizing we are about five minutes over, I don't want to keep people from their day, but I would indulge you with one final question, if I could, is what's beyond even where we are now? If you look three, four, five years ahead, is the world going to be doing what you're doing right now in Australia, or are we going to move to what we've just been seeing happening, which is you know, machine learning algorithms and, quote, big data, real big data systems that are you know, are going to be amalgamating multiple sources and then trying to use 
computer-based deep learning algorithms. Is We're seeing lots and lots of, of, in the COVID era now, we saw lots of groups saying we're doing machine learning as a way to quickly extract information from patient charts and be able to um, assess it. Now, we also saw uh, a particular group uh, lead to two retractions in the New England Journal and Lancet all the same day for doing just that. They doing it, rushed it, and didn't do it appropriately, it seems. And there were a few concerns that led to two retractions from that type of rapidly collected data set. Not sure we're there yet. Wonder what other people think. And maybe there isn't a thought on it, but I'm just curious. I'm raising it because everyone talks machine learning and big data. Uh, look, machine learning is just a technique of analysis. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, it's but I guess it's right. It's, it's, it's the it's data sets. That sounds cool. Yeah, but yeah, like yeah. I think where we're heading is is probably a combination of, of both. You know, uh, trials and big data, and and where we want to move is is an area where we go beyond just joint replacement. You know, for instance, people with osteoarthritis, and and to get some kind of regular. Um, uh, tracking or feedback from these people where they, they tell us what treatments they've had. We're now linking our data with the, with the larger government uh, Medicare uh, uh, data um, as well. So we can, we're going to try and maximize the, the amount of big data or routinely collected data we can get, um, supplement that where we need to, uh, and embed trials where we need to. Wonderful. And I'm just going to ask, I, I see a hand up. I see Anthony's hand up. Anthony, did you want to uh, unmute and give a quick question or did we lose? Hey, you? thanks. Oh, hey, it's Anthony. just, oh. Um, again, to chat a bit about this whole machine learning and its role in those retractions from the, from my understanding, you know, machine learning, people may have used it to extract data from the charts, but the Surgisphere papers that were retracted had to do with the fact that they couldn't provide their data at all. Um, from what I remember, it wasn't so much about that they used machine learning in any way in their papers. Uh, so I agree, rushed publication, things don't work out. But I think like um, some of the other uh, um, speakers mentioned, it's just methods. And um, the retractions were necessarily based on those methods, although certainly in times when people want to rush publications and rush data, anything um, you know, can potentially be not quite as ideal as it okay. should be. Wonderful. We have a, a team machine learning on here, really supporting his cause. Good for you. That's excellent. No, no. And I agree with you, actually. Um, it's just a matter of, uh, I think we have to be careful because there is no one answer, right? There's no magic bullet that's going to solve all the problems. Um, but I think sessions like this, where we at least get to address the issues and, and you know, to some degree, we're not a consensus here today, but we're just trying to understand different viewpoints and at least be aware that there's groups trying to push that, you know, push that dial a bit forward. And we'll look forward to hearing more from what's happening in the group, um, in, in your team as well, Ian. And obviously, um, for all of you who attended, thank you very much for taking a bit of time with us today. I hope you uh, found the smaller group approach. We were deliberate and we had a little bit of back, backlash from people saying, you know, why did you let more people in and why did you let it as a webinar? I don't think we would have had this ability to have this sort of discussion unless we had invited you all as panelists. So rather than have you all as panelists, we just thought we'd have a small group. Um, do you mind just filling out a couple of quick uh, three questions and then we'll, uh, I'll ask Ian for a final closing statement if I could. Okay, I'll look, I'm, I'm, I think we've covered all, the, all the, the topics. I think that the future of evidence generation, however it's done um, in orthopedics is, is pretty bright. Um, the fact that a lot of people dialed in to listen to this is, encouraging um and i just again want to thank you and, and of course thanks sam and and um john i apologize i kind of hugged the microphone a little bit 
um, in the second half there. Um, but, and thanks, Mo, for uh, um, uh, and, and Abby for sort of setting all this up. Um, it's been a great experience. No, and I can't thank you all again. I always say that um, I, um, as you as you were all speaking, I was texting away to some friends saying, "I love mornings where I get to get up and actually learn something again." So um, many things you said, I'm aligned with. So I was maybe biased in the fact that I was just smiling away. Um, but that being said, I think we have lots and lots of things we can continue to do together. And I actually do look forward to uh, following up with all of you about some of the things we can be doing together because the cluster crossover design. And the idea of um, using registry data or uh, you know local registry for us has also been of, of interest. Um, the fact that you've been able to do it, I think, uh, is helpful to us, so we can learn from you a bit. And we'll get this last question answered. And I'll thank you all again, and uh, wish you all a wonderful evening or a, a good start to your day. <laughs>